This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hello and uh, welcome to another hopefully exciting, provocative, informative and maybe even entertaining episode of a parenting program on American Family Radio, carried exclusively on American Family Radio, in fact, broadcast uh, in its original form on Saturdays, every Saturday at 6 o'clock Eastern Time. It's called Because I Said So, and I'm your host, John Rosemond. I am, for those of you who may be joining the show for the first time, a heretic psychologist uh, licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board who, as a body, for a number of years have regretted the day they ever gave me a license. Why? Because I go around the country and I tell the truth about psychologists, which I know to be the truth because I am one. And that is that psychology, not individual psychologists, but psychology, and certainly individual psychologists are guilty of this, but not all, perhaps, psychology, psychological parenting theory, such as the idea that high self-esteem is a good thing, we should do everything we can to help our children acquire it, such as the Darwinist notion that the same principles that govern the behavior of a rat or a dog also govern the behavior of a human being. That's called behavior modification theory, such as the completely bogus ideas of one sociopath named Sigmund Freud, whom we now know faked all of his supposed cures, miraculous cures of predominantly women who were suffering from what was then called hysteria. Yes, the father of modern psychology was a fake. He was a charlatan. He was a pathological liar and a narcissist and a sociopath And perhaps that is why he is called the father of modern psychology. Uh, You may not have noticed because this is a radio show, not a television show, that I had eh, maybe 10% of my tongue in my cheek when I was making the previous comment. Anyway, on with the show. Heretic psychologist, syndicated columnist. My column appears weekly in about 200 newspapers around the country. It's, It's dropping, probably as I speak, because... The newspaper industry, except for the big four, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, the newspaper industry is going down the tubes very rapidly. So newspapers are shrinking by the day. And in order to shrink a newspaper, you have to eject material. So you don't eject ads because they support the newspaper and you don't eject the news for the most part because of the word newspaper. So what you eject are columns. And the first columns that you eject are what's called lifestyle columns. Because usually lifestyle columns only appeal to a very uh, specific demographic, as is the case with mine. So, for example, the Raleigh News and Observer recently pulled my column from its print edition and moved it to the online edition, hoping to attract those readers of mine who looked forward to my column in the print edition, 
hoping to move those people over into the online edition of the Raleigh News and Observer. The, the problem with that is that my column is also on my website. And so it's a whole lot easier, I think, for people to just go to my website where the column is, uh, or link to it anyways, on the home page than it is to go to the website of the Raleigh News and Observer or any other newspaper in America, for that matter, and uh, try to wade through the labyrinth of sections and pages until you finally find my column. Anyway, so the Raleigh News and Observer, after running my column for, oh gosh, uh, 38 years probably, uh, dropped the column from its print edition. It's not a personal thing. I don't take it personally. Just go to my website, johnrosemond.com, for more information about me, my parenting and family ministry, my upcoming speaking schedule, which is pretty, pretty well set for the fall. By the way, this program is pre-recorded when you hear it. My wife and I will be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary in Prague, or more accurately pronounced Praha, in the Czech Republic, or perhaps we will be by June the 16th. I'm not really sure. Uh, I think we'll be in Vienna at that point with a stop over between Praha and Vienna for two days in a charming medieval Czech village, small town called Chetsky Krumlov. That, for me, will be the highlight of the trip. Uh, My wife and I don't go to places where you know, large crowds of tourists go. We kind of go off the beaten path. Anyway, a question came in to me last week. I thought it was a good one. So I'm going to take the rest of at least this portion of the show to uh, discuss it. So these are the parents of a 15-year-old girl who has told her parents that she's in love with a 20-year-old guy who's in the Army and intending to make the Army his career. The parents say they've met the guy, he's very respectful, well-mannered, and has told them that he is in love with their daughter. Now, let me make it clear here. A five-year difference when the male is 20 and the female is 15, that's very significant. But keep in mind, as you listen to my answer to their question, that five years when the guy is 40 and the female is 35, that is not a significant difference at all. Anyway, the parents said they've made it clear to both parties that for the time being, they can only meet in their home when they are home, nowhere else. The guy is fine with that, uh, seems sincere. Our daughter, however, they say, is not fine with that. She wants the freedom to see him whenever and wherever. Well, of course she does. She says we don't trust her, which is only half true. No, it should be completely true. Even though he says he doesn't want physical intimacy until he's married, we know, say the parents, from personal experience how easy it is for young people to get carried away. Oh, yes, don't we all? Her emotionality over this, along with the fact that we actually like him, is causing us to think that perhaps we should allow some meetings away from our home. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't have any thoughts. Uh, Having had a daughter who, having a daughter, in fact, and not having had, but I have a daughter who was once a teenager, I have but one thought, no. Full disclosure, I am at this point in my life, and somewhat belatedly so, very old-fashioned about most things male and female. 
I don't think teens should be allowed to date until both are 16, for example. Why six? And, and not automatically, but only if they're very mature, trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why 16? Why not 15 and a half? Well, I don't have a defensible reason, actually. 16 just seems like a good uh, round number. Furthermore, if I was doing the dad thing today, any male courting my daughter would first have to come to our home several times where they could watch TV together, something equally exciting. Not to mention that the guy would be required by me to have a long and rather purposefully intimidating conversation about matters of life and death before he'd be allowed to see my daughter without adult supervision. Then I would set at least initially a curfew of 10 o'clock on non-school nights like Friday and Saturday. There would be no curfew on school nights because they wouldn't be seeing one another on non-school or on school nights, excuse me, and so on. In short, I would be daddy di infierno and proud of it. And you'll just have to look that up. Yes, it is Spanish. Daddy di infierno. Now, it's one thing when both parties are about the same age. It's quite another when one is a dependent child this 15-year-old, and the other is an adult. Furthermore, it is double quite another thing when the former is a minor child below the age of consent. Furthermore, it is triple quite another thing when the latter is in the military and the former is below the age of consent. In that regard, you, the parents, might mention to your daughter's suitor that uh, should he initiate or participate in any problem behavior with her, or you even think, you even have reason to believe that he has done so, that you will make a visit to his commanding officer. That should virtually guarantee good behavior on his part, assuming he is truly serious about making the army a career. So having said all that, you know, fairly commonsensical, I think, stuff, I'll tell you that I've known or known of a good number of older married folks who began dating when one was a young adult and the other was a minor. You know, one was in college, one was in their junior or senior year of high school, something like that. And uh, in and of itself, my conclusion is that the situation is not a recipe for certain disaster, although it often ends up that way and probably more than 50% of the time, and, and, and primarily because of the guy's intentions. I, I will say that too, that they are not on the up and up. And by the way, based on the conversations I've had with these folks that who succeeded under those uh, inauspicious circumstances, I'm reasonably sure they would agree with the safeguards I recommend. These days, when I have the opportunity to advise a young woman concerning marriage, I almost always advise, I would say I always advise, not almost always, that she marry a somewhat older guy who is verifiably responsible, mature, not living with his parents or in some digs they have provided. He's got a job, shows up for work every day, you know, isn't uh, playing video games on his time off. Since that description would obviously apply to the fellow in question, I would be inclined to restrict 
but not stand in the way of a relationship. If the guy can tolerate the restrictions, it's evidence that he's truly uh, serious about the young lady. In the final analysis, however, the most important relationship in this equation is between the father and the guy in question, the two males. Need I say I believe in the old ounce of prevention? I'll be right back after this break with another interesting question. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. I'm doing something that uh, occasionally do, not real often, but occasionally. Uh, I just uh, I devote the uh, program to questions that I've received from parents recently. So the next question that I'm going to deal with uh, was submitted because an individual listened to a show I did that broadcast a week or two ago in which I talked about my ideas concerning the dramatic rise in child and teen depression and suicide since the 1960s. And basically what I said was, first, that the mental health professions, psychology, psychiatry, clinical social work, uh, marriage and family therapists, uh, those people, they don't understand what is going on with the epidemic of child and teen depression and suicide. And because they don't understand what's going on, their treatments are way off the mark, which is why even though the number of child and adolescent therapists per, you know, pick a number, uh, 10,000 children and adolescents, you know, kids between three and, uh, and 18, has probably increased. That number has probably increased since the 1960s by a factor of 100. No kidding. Even though there's been this explosion in the availability of treatment for kids who are dealing with depression, anxiety issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the epidemic continues to rise. Nothing that the mental health professions has come up with has worked. It hasn't worked because they don't understand what's going on. So number two, this is the second thing I said, what is going on is that in my estimation, the epidemic increase in child and teen depression and suicide since the 1960s correlates with the equivalent decline among our nation's youth in respect for adult authority. And here's my reasoning. Uh, My reasoning is that children, and I've said this many times on this program, uh, children need authority in their lives, firm, unequivocal authority in their lives, as much as they need unconditional love. When love is missing, depression is a likely response. Well, I feel the same way about authority. When authority is missing, depression becomes a likely response. Depression is 
for the most part, a feeling of helplessness. And to those feelings of helplessness in the face of a world that is unpredictable and dangerous, adult authority is the antidote for a child. So anyway, I got this uh, question. In a recent uh, program, you shared your belief that the rise in teen depression since the 1960s is due primarily to a decline in respect for adult authority on the part of children and teens. Our 17-year-old daughter has struggled with anxiety and depression since she was 13, yet she's very respectful to us and to other adults. She makes good grades, holds down a part-time job, is active in church, and is an all-around pleasure to be with. Any ideas on why your explanation doesn't fit in her case? Yes. Uh, Good question. So, for... Purposes of emphasis, again, I maintain that respect for adult authority is essential to good child and teen mental health. The belief that the adult authority in his life or her life is legitimate and present and reliable anchors a child's sense of security and nurtures, therefore, a sense of well-being. Without that authority in the child's life, the world is unpredictable, unsafe, And depression is one likely response to that state of what philosophers would call existential crisis. My explanation, I'm convinced, is correct, or I wouldn't be so bold to put it out there for the world to see and hear. Keep in mind, however, that I'm talking about two opposing but intimately related trends. As respect for adult authority has waned over the last 50-plus years, child and teen depression and suicide have waxed. As one has gone up, the other has gone down, and vice versa. In my estimation, the mental health professions haven't been able to slow the decline in child mental health because they're barking up the wrong trees. Not to mention that their completely wrong-headed progressive parenting theories figure very significantly in the problem. For example, folks, the research has verified conclusively what I've been saying for many, many years, that uh, people with high self-esteem do not have better emotional resilience. They have worse emotional resilience Because they have inflated opinions of themselves, they cannot fathom why bad things happen to them. And uh, unlike people who are humble and modest and, uh, you know, tuned appropriately to the realities of existence as a human being, they, these people collapse in the face of adversity. They don't have good coping skills. So here's an area, and very significant one, a high self-esteem. You know, the mental health professions say in, the, in this chorus, this one voice beginning in the late 1960s, high self-esteem is a great thing. Everybody should have it. Children should have it. Adults should do everything they can do to help children develop high self-esteem. And as one researcher says, we've done a very good job of instilling high self-esteem into America's uh, youth. The problem is that high self-esteem isn't a good thing, that it weakens a person's emotional defenses. 
So it is for reason, it is for reasons like that that uh, I say as often as I can to audiences around the country that, uh, yeah, the mental health professions, they have been a wrecking ball in parenting. They have been a wrecking ball in child mental health. It's, you know, if I was inclined to conspiracy theories, which, um, you know, to a certain degree I am, I, I do believe that, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, may have been one of the shooters, but one is the operative number at uh, Dealey Square in uh, in Dallas in 1963. But if I was a full blown conspiracy theorist, I would uh, I would think, wow, you know, this is just a great scam. Here is a an entire profession of people who construct a theory of human nature out of thin air, out of whole cloth. They cut this thing out of whole cloth, uh, market it to the American public. This uh, set of theories destroys mental the mental health of the American child and teenager. And the very people who constructed the theory end up uh, making a living off of the destruction that they have caused. So anyway, back to the question about this 17-year-old girl who's uh, very respectful of adult authority, both in the home, outside the home, and yet has been dealing with depression since she was 13. So no one would rationally argue that the the trends that I'm talking about here, the uptick in child and teen depression and the decline, the corresponding decline in respect for adults and adult authority, which is the fault of adults, by the way, who are simply not occupying appropriate positions of authority. They are not exercising authority over children in an appropriate way. There are all too many adults today who want to be liked by kids. I, you know, I keep saying, why, why would a 30, 40, 50-year-old person want to be liked by a child? I mean, what is the satisfaction? What, what, what is the bonus there? What is the perk? I don't get it. So anyway, no one would argue that the two trends are real, but trends don't predict individual outcomes. So, for example, there are kids out there who lack respect for adults but aren't depressed, and there are those who, like the 17-year-old girl in question, are depressed but very respectful. So I don't claim that my explanation fits every single case of teen depression. What I do claim is that it fits the overall dramatic upswing in child and teen mental health problems. So what is my explanation concerning this 17-year-old? Well, not knowing her, I cannot be definitive, but I think the fact that she's a girl is playing a role. According to a relatively recent study in the journal Pediatrics, which is the journal of pediatrics in America, uh, girls are three times more likely than boys to experience major depressive episodes during adolescence. Three times more likely. 
It may also be that teen depression is contagious, that within any given female peer group, once a certain number of girls become depressed, depression begins to snowball, spread like wildfire. Some readers may be asking, some listeners, that is, may be asking about the influence of biochemical imbalances. As I've said numerous times on this program, no one's ever precisely measured a state of chemical balance in the nervous system. Therefore, any claims concerning imbalances are unsupported and even possibly unsupportable. So we got to wind this up quickly, but it's very possible that what are currently being thought of within the professional community as illnesses, mental illnesses, may someday be looked upon as simply bad emotional habits. So that's all the time we've got for today's show, folks. Sorry, um, again, every Saturday on American Family Radio at uh, 6 o'clock Eastern Time and exclusively on American Family Radio. I hope you join me next Saturday. In the meantime, God bless you, your kids, and your family.